Well, I want to wish you a happy Easter. Thanks for uh, being here today. What a great, great uh, time of the year it is. To those who are watching online at our Mill Creek and our campus here, we're so glad that you came. I don't know if you know this or not, but approximately 108 billion people have lived and been born from the beginning of time until now. But only one person's birthday is celebrated around the world, even by people who don't even believe in him, even by people who don't even follow him. People all over the world take time out of their schedule and take vacations, and they take free time to celebrate his birth. And of course, you know we're talking about Jesus. As a matter of fact, his birthday is the most celebrated birthday in the history of this planet. Furthermore, of the 100 plus billion people who have died since the world began, only one death is commemorated by more than 2 billion people. It's even given a name. It's called Good Friday. And so billions of people around the world take time every year to acknowledge his birthday and to acknowledge his death day. But that begs the question, why do people do that? We don't take time out to celebrate anybody else's birthday around the world. We don't take time out to celebrate anybody else's death day around the world. Why in the world would anybody's birth and death be so popularly celebrated? Well, the answer to those questions actually answer an even greater question. And it's one we've been asking for the last three weeks, and that is, why Jesus? I mean, of all the religious leaders who have ever lived, why Jesus? Of the more than 4,200 religions in the world, think about that, 4,200 religions. Why would Christians in the 21st century, why would we make the audacious claim that only the Christian faith can get you to God? In other words, the real question is not just why Jesus, but why only Jesus? Why not Jesus and somebody else? Or why not anybody instead of Jesus? And frankly, three things separate Jesus from every other person who's ever lived. One is the life that he lived. Because of the 108 billion people who've lived on this planet at one time or another, he is the only one to this day who has ever claimed to be absolutely perfect. He is the only one who ever claimed to be completely, totally sinless. And his family and his friends and his foes never contradicted that fact. From all accounts, from all that we can know about him, Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. But then there's his death. He died on a cross. But regardless of how you die, not a big deal. A hundred billion people have died. We're all going to die. And yet of the hundred billion people who have died, he is still the only one who said, I didn't die for me. I died for you. I didn't die for my sins. I died for your sins. He alone made that claim. Now, if he did die for the sins of the world, then you would have to agree that his death was unlike the death of any other person who has ever lived. But the clincher is the belief that he physically and permanently rose from the dead. So I want you to think with me for just a moment. If those three things are true, if they're true, that means he lived an unequal life, he died a unique death, and he experienced an unmatched resurrection. Every other religion in the world can point to a founder who lived and died, and most of them can even point to a grave where their founder is buried or to a monument. Christianity is the only faith in the world that points 
to something that was empty. That points to an empty tomb. And Christianity is the only faith in the world that still says to this day, our founder's not dead. Your founder may be dead. He is, as a matter of fact. She is, as a matter of fact. Our founder is alive. That's why when it comes to Jesus, it's just not enough to stop what you're doing and celebrate his birth and exchange gifts at Christmas. It's not even enough to stop and commemorate his death at what we call the Lord's Supper and kind of remember that he died on the cross. Because at the end of the day, the reason why this day is so important is you just can't bypass the resurrection. Because in the debate over every other religious faith and every other religious leader in the world, Nothing outweighs and nothing compares to the battle that is being waged over a certain plot of Jerusalem real estate where somebody said death moved in on a Friday afternoon and life came out the front door on a Sunday morning. So here's what we're going to do. Today we're going to listen to a man who wrote over one half of the New Testament. Now the reason that's such a shock is because there was a time in this man's life he hated the name Jesus. If you wanted to set him off, you just mention his name. He made it his life's work to stamp out Christianity and stop it dead in his tracks. But because he claimed to the day that he died, to the day he was beheaded, because he claimed that he met the risen Lord, he met Jesus who had come back from the dead, he became the champion of answering the question, why Jesus? So if you have a copy of God's Word or you've got a cell phone or an iPad or something, I want you to turn to a book called Acts. It's in the New Testament, right after four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 13. If you don't have a, want to do that, we're going to throw some verses up on the screen. But let me just kind of set the stage. This man was named Paul. He's probably the most famous person in the New Testament outside of Jesus. He's talking about Jesus in a place called Antioch. I've been to Antioch. It's the place where believers were first called Christians. And four times, he's talking to a group of people here, four times he says Jesus was raised from the dead. He says it four different times. And then he tells us why he believed it and why we ought to believe it too. So I just want to say three things to you today. First of all, we have an empty tomb. When you talk about the resurrection, you ask, well, why do you believe? Why are you so passionate? Why are you so fervent? Why are you so excited about this, this fact that you say that Jesus is alive? Because we have an empty tomb. Because there's something nobody can deny. Something happened 2,000 years ago that absolutely was so dramatic, so transformational, that it changed 11 men's lives so drastically that every single one of them died a violent martyr's death except one, and he lived in exile on an island all by himself until he literally starved to death. Something spawned the writing of four gospels. Something united, ignited a movement that went in concentric circles, circles from a place called Jerusalem, then it went to Asia, then it went to Europe until it covered the entire world. And remember now, when we read what we're about to read here, the man that's telling this, the man that's telling, giving these words, he detested the name of Jesus. He despised the movement called Christianity. He devoted his life to destroying the church, what we're in right now. And so what he's about to say makes the statement even more amazing. Listen to what he says. He says, when they had carried out all that was written about him, he's talking about when Jesus was crucified, 
They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is referring to an empty tomb. And there's one thing that's absolutely certain. I mean, there's no question about it. If the tomb where Jesus was buried had not been empty, we wouldn't be celebrating Easter or Christmas. If the tomb had not been empty, I'd be doing something else besides what I'm doing right now. And you for sure would be somewhere other than where you are right now. As a matter of fact, this entire building will still be a hollowed out missile factory that with kudzu climbing the walls. But the th because the thing that would have stopped Christianity from ever getting off the ground, the thing that would have made Christianity crash and burn before it ever took off was, was very simple. If there was an unempty tomb, game over, no more discussion. So let me give you a reverse illustration. My, my son's an attorney. We were talking about this the other day. I want you to imagine that you're on trial for murder but you are proclaiming you're innocent. You have pled innocent. You say, I didn't murder this person uh, and, and I'm not gonna plead guilty to something I didn't do. So you pled innocent. And furthermore, the case is complicated because they can't find the body. No dead body has been, has been produced. So I want you to imagine this trial's going on back and forth and they're kind of, the others, the prosecution's presenting all this circumstantial evidence or trying to prove you guilty and yet your defense attorney, you know, just stands by a story. This man said he didn't kill this guy. This man said he's innocent. He did not do it. And besides that, you have no dead body. Now imagine at that moment, the person that this man was claimed to have killed walks into that courtroom. At that exact moment, trial's over. Case is dismissed. He's going to the varsity. There is absolutely no possibility that that man can be guilty of murdering somebody if that person is still alive. Now to be sure, let me just make something plain. The empty tomb alone does not prove that Jesus rose from the dead. I understand that. However, for 11 men, think about this, for 11 men who just three days earlier had denied Jesus, had run out on Jesus, had, had, had left Jesus by himself, had left Jesus in the cold, who were hiding out for fear that they too would be killed because of Jesus. Three days later, they go out into the streets of Jerusalem. They start preaching about Jesus. They start proclaiming about Jesus to anybody that would listen. They, kept, they started telling everybody, we've seen Jesus. He has been raised from the dead. If they did that while he was still in the tomb, well, that'd be stupid. I mean, that would be absolutely foolish. So in other words, if like every other grave and every other tomb, the body was still there, then any talk about a resurrection would be preposterous. But if the tomb is empty, then you have to at least say, well, maybe the resurrection is at least possible. But then it might not just be possible. Maybe when you examine it, it's plausible. Maybe the best explanation for why the tomb is empty is because he was raised from the dead. So I want you to think about this. Any serious student of whatever happened 2,000 years ago does not deny two things. I've never denied, I've never met anybody who believed that Jesus existed and the evidence he existed is overwhelming. I've never met anybody that denied two things. Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago and Jesus was buried 2,000 years ago. Nobody denies that. So 
If the tomb was empty, there are only two possibilities. He was raised from the dead or somebody took the body. That's the only explanation there can be. He was raised from the dead or somebody took the body. Well, there are only two possibilities of who would have taken the body. His friends or his foes. That's the only two people that have done it. People that liked him and people that didn't. Well, when you just give a brief examination, you realize two things real quick. His foes, they wouldn't have taken it. And his friends couldn't have taken it. Now, you think about it. To make sure that nobody took the body. See, the, 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 the Pharisees and the Jews that crucified Jesus, they were already thinking ahead of time. And, and so as soon as Jesus was crucified and taken down and buried, they said, you know what? We do not want his disciples stealing the body. We don't want anybody to think this guy really was the son of God. We don't want anybody to really think he really came back from the dead. So they go to the Roman officials and they said, would you please give us some Roman soldiers to guard the tomb? They said, oh, we'll do better than that. We'll give you the green beret. We'll give you the army rangers. We'll give you the Navy SEALs. So they put this crack garrison of Roman soldiers to guard that tomb. Then they put a rock. They seal the tomb with a rock. They put a rock in front of it. So if the Pharisees went ahead and took the body, then all they had to do was produce it. I mean, if the Pharisees took the body and said, you know, we're going to take the body. We're, we're just waiting. The first time somebody talks about the resurrection, we're going to shut this stuff up. They would have never gone to the trouble of having the disciples arrested, which they did. They would have never imprisoned, flogged, and eventually killed all of them, which they did. All they had to do to bring this thing called Christianity to a fatal end, to an absolute stop, was just produce the body. But they didn't produce the body. So there can only be one reason why they didn't produce the body, right? They didn't have the body. Because if they had, they would have, but they didn't because they couldn't. So you say, well, his foes, first of all, they wouldn't have done it, but even if they would have, they would have produced the body, so you gotta rule them out. How about his friends? There are all kinds of reasons to prove they couldn't have done it even if they wanted to, but let me tell you one thing that's telling. Every one of these men were willing to die as a matter of fact, all 11 of them did die because they believed that Jesus was raised from the dead and they were tortured. One was crucified upside down. One was thrown to the lions. Several were beheaded. Several were knifed and cut into pieces. One was left in exile on an island, but they would not deny that they saw Jesus. They would not deny this man had been raised from the dead. Now listen carefully. People will die for convictions. They won't die for concoctions. People will die for something they believe is true. They're not gonna die for something they just made up. They, they, people will die for what they believe is the truth, but they won't die for what they know is a lie unless they're trying to protect a friend or a loved one. They're not going to do that. I know, by the way, just kind of one other thing to throw out. When you go back and read the Gospels, you know it's kind of interesting. There wasn't one disciple the moment that Jesus was put in that tomb, there was not one disciple that believed that Jesus was going to come back from the dead. Not one. They didn't camp out. They weren't out there cooking hot dogs and marshmallows waiting on Sunday. They, they, they weren't sitting there saying, man, it isn't gonna be great when he comes back. Nope, they were hiding out. They had run away. They were afraid they were gonna get killed because they followed Jesus. They never even thought that he would ever come out of that tomb because neither the Jews nor the Greeks, 
nor the Romans at that time believed that a bodily resurrection of an individual was even possible. Now, to be fair, the Jews did believe at the end of time that God would resurrect what, what, what they called righteous people, but they believed they would all be resurrected together. Nobody believed that one day God would raise one person from the dead right in the middle of history, long before time was ended. Nobody believed that. I mean, it's pretty obvious. His followers were reconciled to the fact when he drew his last breath and they put him in that tomb, they had already made up their mind, he's gone. Stick a fork in him, he is done. We are never gonna see him again on this earth. But the empty tomb changed everything. William Wand, a former professor at Oxford University. I don't even know if this man's a Christian or not, but I want you to listen to what he said. He said, all the strictly historical evidence that we have is in favor of the empty tomb. And those scholars who reject it ought to recognize that they do so on some other ground than that of scientific history. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you're here, or today I meant to say, if you're here today and you are not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, at least do yourself one favor. Admit the tomb was empty. So we have an empty tomb. Now, I'll be the first one again to say, well, you know, if all you got is an empty tomb, it's kind of game over. I mean, it doesn't really prove anything, but we've got something else. We not only have an empty tomb, we have eyewitness testimonies. We have eyewitness testimonies. There are two bookends to the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You've got the empty tomb, yes, but you've also got eyewitness testimonies because two facts form a resurrection-shaped dent in history. And this is what Paul was referring to when he went on to say this, referring to his post-resurrection appearance. Listen to what Paul said. Paul said, and for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Now again, I was thinking about this today as I was coming into church. My son's an attorney and, and I always wanted to be an attorney myself. Some of you know that. And my son's taught me something, and you know, I think you probably already know it. But if you ask an attorney, what's the one thing you would give anything to have in any case that you tried, you want to make sure you want to win that case? You know what you want? You want eyewitnesses. You want credible eyewitnesses. And the more of them, the better. The more you've got to corroborate each other's story, the better off you are. Well, if you combine the empty tomb with the eyewitness testimonies, this is what moves even skeptics to say, you know what? I better take a look at this. I better kind of examine what I'm looking at here because no one disputes, nobody, that there were a lot of men and a lot of women who claimed to be a test, who claimed to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, which by the way, is talked about in every single book of the New Testament. Every single one talks about the resurrection. Two gospels, by the way, Matthew and John, they were written by men who were disciples, who spent three years with Jesus, never left his side. And they both died for their belief and their conviction that Jesus Christ was alive. And oh, by the way, it wasn't the four gospels that explained the resurrection. It is the resurrection that explains the four gospels. If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, there wouldn't be a Christmas story. 
If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, we wouldn't know anything about him walking on the water. If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, we wouldn't know anything about all the miracles that he performed. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, four men said, we've got to write about that. As a matter of fact, it is the resurrection that really explains the, the last uh, 29 books of the New Testament. So let me put this in perspective. If you took away the birth of Jesus, if you took the birth of Jesus out of the Bible, it would only remove Matthew and Luke because they're the only ones that talk about it. But if you take away the resurrection of Jesus, you just lost the entire New Testament. We don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Roman, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, on and on and on. You don't have any of those books. Hey, let me tell you this one. This, will, this, is, this is mind-boggling to me. One of my favorite New Testament books is a book called James. Now, that's not because my name is James, okay? It's just a strange coincidence. But I really do love the book of James. If you don't know much about the Bible, let me tell you about this book called James. James was the Lord's brother. He, he, he wrote the book of James. He was a brother of Jesus. You ready for this? Jesus' entire earthly life, his own brother didn't believe in him. His own brother didn't buy it. His own brother didn't think he was the son of God. He did not believe that. As a matter of fact, he didn't even believe in Jesus was the son of God and as the son of God until Jesus was alive. He had other brothers. None of his brothers bought into it. Jesus said this about his own brothers. Listen to this. Or John said this. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Now, I got to sympathize with his brothers. How many of you have brothers or sisters? Okay, I mean, you, you get this, right? So, you got an older brother. And your older brother comes to you one day and he says, Hey, just between us, I'm the son of God. Now you're going to say, okay, you need to lay off the Capri Sun and you need to quit sniffing the glue, right? Here's brothers. They grew up with Jesus. They lived with Jesus for 30 years. They didn't believe in him. Jesus had 12 disciples. Not one brother became a disciple, not one. They said, well, bye. We grew up with this guy, I'm telling you. He's not who he says. As a matter of fact, you know what? This is kind of funny. They actually thought he was crazy because in his ministry, Jesus would say incredible things about himself, claiming unbelievable things about himself. And here's what Mark tells us. Listen to this. When his family heard about this, when they heard all the things that Jesus was claiming, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, come to me, you'll have eternal life. He's saying all these things. They went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. They're looking for the white coat. They're looking for the, for the sanatorium. They said, our brother has lost his ripping mind. And yet 40 years I mean, 40 days after his crucifixion, 40 days, you've got 120 people in a room and they're worshiping Jesus and they're glorifying Jesus and they're exalting Jesus and they're loving Jesus and they're blessing Jesus. And listen to who's in that room. Listen to this. They all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And the Apostle Paul, who's telling us this, the Apostle Paul, who's speaking these words, 
He had a very unique experience with the risen Jesus. See, every other witness to the resurrection, without exception, every other witness to the resurrection saw Jesus between his resurrection, re resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Many of them saw him when he was physically alive. Paul is the only one who encountered Jesus after he had already physically left this planet. He never met the physical Jesus. He never saw him do a miracle. He didn't see him hanging on the cross. He wasn't at the, little, at, the, at the cradle when Jesus was born. He didn't know anything about the physical Jesus at all. And furthermore, everyone else who believed in the resurrection of Jesus, every single one of them, they started out. They loved Jesus. They respected Jesus. They revered Jesus. They wanted Jesus to come back from the dead. But not Paul. He hated Jesus. He was hostile to Jesus. He didn't want to consider the possibility of a resurrection. And boom, something happened. And he goes on to write over half of the New Testament. He traveled over 10,000 miles. He traveled all over Asia Minor. In modern day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Israel. He traveled all over, establishing hundreds and hundreds of churches. And it was all built on the foundation of eyewitness testimonies who saw the risen Jesus. There is no other religion. There is no other religious or philosophical leader of any of the world's religions or philosophies that have ever proclaimed a risen Savior. Go, at, go look at all 4,200 religions. Not one of them will celebrate what we're celebrating today. Not one of them will say, isn't it great that the founder of our religion is alive? None of them. Every other religion speaks of a leader who is alive, but now dead. But the New Testament does not talk about a Jesus who was alive and now dead. The New Testament talks about a Jesus who was dead, but is now alive. And the New Testament and these eyewitnesses testimonies who not only wrote these words, but sealed them with their own blood. They proclaimed a Christ who said, oh yes, he was born. Yes, he lived, but yes, he died and he's now alive. And except for Christianity, let's put Christianity over here. You got to put every other religion over there, every single one. And except for Christianity, every religious or philosophical belief is either based on somebody's personality or someone's philosophy who is dead. For example, Take the three major religions, Judaism, oldest of the four. You know what they teach? Their founder was Abraham, but you know what they'll tell you? Abraham's dead. Or take Buddha, Buddhism. Buddha was founded by Buddha himself, but they will admit to you, yes, Buddha is dead. Islam, founded on the teachings of Muhammad, but every Muslim will tell you Muhammad is dead. They don't, nobody claims their leader is alive. Christianity is the only belief that is not based just on someone's teachings or someone's personality, but on the historical fact of a resurrection that's been evidenced by an empty tomb on the one hand and eyewitness testimonies on the other hand. As a matter of fact, I'll just say this real quick. I'm gonna come back to it. You can't even explain the existence of the church. The church never gets built. The church never gets off the ground. The church never goes anywhere apart from the resurrection. The evidence is just so compelling. And don't take my word for it. I want you to listen to an Englishman. You've probably never heard of him. His name is John Singleton Copley, better known as Lord Lyndhurst. If you're a lawyer, you'll probably know who this guy is. 
He is recognized as one of the greatest legal minds in British history. Lord Lyndhurst was at one time, listen to this, at one time, he was the Solicitor General of the British government, the Attorney General of Great Britain, the High Chancellor of England, and the High Steward of the University of Cambridge. In one lifetime, this man held the highest offices ever conferred upon any judge in the history of Great Britain. This is what this great legal mind said. I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection of Jesus Christ has never broken down yet. So yes, we have an empty tomb. But we also have eyewitness testimonies. But there's one last great evidence to me that kind of seals the deal. We experience an eternal transformation. Now listen to how Paul concludes what he's telling these people. Listen to this. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Let me just stop right there. See, we're all going to see decay one day. You understand that? So you go ahead and have your plastic surgery. And you have your Botox parties. And you have your eyelid lifts and you have your tummy tucks. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, you're just going to be ashes and dust. We're all going to decay. But the one whom God raised didn't see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, now this is what Paul's saying, that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to attain under the law of Moses. Now, I want to tell you two ways the resurrection of Jesus is so unique. First of all, some of you who know your Bible have probably kind of figured this out, so you think you got ahead of me, but you didn't. Yeah, you say, but wait a minute. There were other people in the Bible who were raised from the dead. You're right. Many of you know at least one's name starts with an L. What was his name? Yeah, Lazarus. So we have, well, Lazarus was raised from the dead. So what was different? Well, the difference is everyone else in the Bible, there are not many, but of the few people that were raised from the dead, guess what? <laughs> they had to do it all over again. They had to die all over again. They were raised, but they died again, and their bodies turned to ashes. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was given a new kind of body. He was given a perfect body, a body that's no longer subject to decay, a body that's no longer worried about disease, and a body certainly that no longer faces death. But it's unique in another way because Jesus' resurrection also gives us two things that nothing else and no one else can give us. And by the way, it's the two things, whether you realize it or not, you and I need more than anything else the moment we're born to the moment we die. You know what we need? We need forgiveness of sins and we need freedom from guilt. It's what we need. I talk to people all the time. They're depressed. They're discouraged. They're addicted to drugs. They're addicted to pornography. They have sexual addictions. They got hangups. I mean, we're all, that's a part of the human race. And I talk to people all the time, and it doesn't take me long to realize, you got two big needs. You need forgiveness of your sins. And you need freedom 
from your guilt. You know, as a child, you think about this. There are two words, if you're a good parent, there are two words you teach a child to say pretty quickly after they learn to talk. You know what those two words are? I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry. Okay, tell dad you're sorry. Tell little brother you're sorry. Tell little sister you're sorry you hit her in the head with a baseball bat, okay? Tell her you're sorry. And you know what? Even when we're little children, we figure out kind of early on, something's wrong with me. Why do I do things I know I shouldn't do? And why don't I do the things I know that I should do? Well, that's a, that problem is what the Bible calls sin. And if your conscience is healthy and your conscience is right, even as a child, when you do wrong, you feel bad about it. You feel guilty over it. You know you need to be forgiven. But then you get older and you learn an even greater lesson. You can do something wrong and you can be told you're forgiven. You can be assured that you're forgiven. You can be preached to that you're forgiven, but you still feel guilty. And you begin to realize, you know what? It's not just that I need to be forgiven of my sin. I need to be freed from my guilt. Just to give you one example. I talk to them all the time. Divorce people. I can't tell you the times I've talked to people who've been divorced. And they wish they hadn't gotten a divorce. But they got divorced. And they've gotten remarried. And they're in a good marriage. But they know what divorce does. And they know how bad divorce can be. And even though they've been forgiven, and even though divorce is not the unpardonable sin, they still feel guilty. And the only remedy for that, the only remedy is the resurrection. That's why I want you to understand something. See, so often we come to church on Easter Sunday, and here's deep down what we're thinking. Here we go again. Heard it all before. I get it. I know. Jesus died, raised from the dead. I got that. Okay, you know, just get it over with so I can go out to eat. But I want you to understand why the resurrection of Jesus is not just a theological doctrine that we believe as Christians and we preach, you know, ever so often. It's extremely relevant to your life because I want to make you a promise. You will never find forgiveness for your sins and you'll never truly be free from the guilt of all the ways you've blown it until you meet the risen Jesus. But through him, we find we have that forgiveness that we need. We are set free from that guilt. We have the eternal transformation that takes place in the life of everyone who comes to the risen Jesus. So hopefully, you'll understand how all that we've been saying, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, how all this fits together. So Jesus lives a sinless life. And because Jesus lives a sinless life, he can die for our sins because he doesn't have any to die for. He can die for ours. And then he comes back from the dead. Well, why is that such a big deal? Well, Jesus did live a perfect life. And Jesus did die for our sins. But the empty proof, the empty tomb is proof that God cashed the check. When God brought his son back from the dead, he said, just so you'll know, just so there won't be any, 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 any doubt at all, your debt, your sin debt 
completely paid off. And I proved it by the resurrection of Jesus. He accepted the payment. He canceled our sin debt. And he set us free from the guilt of all sin. Now, I want to just kind of wrap this up. I want to take you back to the resurrection, to the story just for a moment. I want all of you to think about something. If you read the resurrection story, you'll know this. If you don't, I'll kind of clue you in. In fact, we saw it on the video a while ago. So the gospel writers say that when some ladies came to the empty tomb, and by the way, again, they weren't expecting a resurrection. They actually came to wash and to cleanse and, 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 and to re, kind, of, kind of recover the body of Jesus. There was an angel sitting there. And the scripture writers, the, the, the writers say that the angel was the one that rolled away the stone. Now, let me ask you a simple question. I bet you've never thought about this before. If Jesus can walk on water, and if Jesus can feed 5,000 people with a chili dog and french fries, and if Jesus can come back from the dead, he doesn't need an angel to roll away the stone. I mean, I think he's pretty capable of getting that done on his own. As a matter of fact, he didn't even need the stone rolled away. He could have walked right through the stone. So yeah, I never thought about that before. So here's my question. Why did the angel roll away the stone? Jesus didn't need him to do it. So why, does, why, does the, why do the gospel writers take pains to let us know the angel rolled away the stone? Listen carefully. The reason why that angel rolled away the stone was not to let Jesus out. It was to let unbelievers in to see for themselves this guy is alive. This guy is exactly who he said he was. He did exactly what he said he did. And he is not dead. He is alive forevermore. Yeah, give the Lord a hand. And that's why he of all the religious leaders who have ever lived and all the religious philosophers who have spouted off their wares, he is the only one that can give you the two things you need more than anything else and you better have before you die. Forgiveness of sins and freedom from guilt. Nobody can transform your life like that. So, here's where you are. May not be comfortable to say it. May not, may not like, you know, me kind of getting you to force up, to force you to face up to it. But this is where you are. There's a religious buffet out there. You got 4,200 different items to choose from. You can take the one you want and leave all the rest. Or you can choose none at all. It's your choice. But I want you to remember your choice. Because at the end of the day, and at the end of your life, you will have made one of two choices. You will either follow the dead or you will follow the only one who came back from the dead. Jesus is the only person who physically came back from the dead, who will physically come back to earth to bring all who believe in him physically back from the dead to live with him forevermore. And what a happy Easter that's going to be. So, Jesus lived, so do we.
Jesus died, so will we. But your only hope to come back from the dead is to trust in the only one who did. Let's pray together.